0: Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties. Proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best
1: in every way. One of the most ignorant statements I heard years ago from a supposedly Christian co-worker was that Black people were the market of Cain.
0: These wings of mine are short and shattered in the cold. This is the All At Once podcast for women
2: and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal,
0: and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory.
2: We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma.
0: The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Janice, my friend, thank you for joining us on the All
1: at Once podcast today. It is so good to be here. Thanks for this opportunity to be part of the all at once journey. I have enjoyed so much so many of the episodes and find them so inspirational. Oh, thank you for those words.
0: Janice, next season and season three, we are intentionally elevating and centering our season on the voices and experiences of people of color. All of our guests from season three will be people of color. And we're actually, we just talked today about bringing on another producer and co-host of color because I'm reading this book by Austin Channing Brown. That's excellent, recommended by David Bridges. And she said, if you want to center black voices or people of color, you have to have them at the decision-making table, not just as a guest. So for season two... Our very last episode of season two, it's rare that we actually record the last episode last. So it's kind of a cool thing that we're doing today. And I just like to wrap up everything that we've talked about in, in this season and season two, connect it back to season one, and then use that to kind of anchor us as we launch into season two. Before we kind of learn more about Janice, I just want to reiterate the thing I say in the beginning of the intro is... I invite you, our listeners, to join me in discomfort. Some of the things we discuss are going to make people uncomfortable. We will be confronted with our own fragility and really the fragility of a system built by wealthy white males for wealthy white males and this is something that you're familiar with, Janice. I, I remember you preaching a sermon about how you don't want America to go back to how things used to be. And it was incredibly powerful. It made me weep. So why must we hope for a better future for our nation, for people of color, instead of working to recreate
1: the past? I would actually rephrase that question and say we need to work for a better future while understanding lessons of the past. And I say work versus hope because work is a more intentional action. Work can bring change, while hope is just that, hope. James Baldwin said, if you don't know what happened behind you, you have no idea what is happening around you. What has happened in the United States the past 400 plus years has had a direct influence on what is happening now. And so I think it's important to understand the history, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, to ensure that we create a future where people of color can thrive. Because when marginalized people thrive, everybody thrives. Mm -hmm. We for sure experience that as as
0: women who've been marginalized and, and outcast for our views and from our families and church homes. And I know that as we are embraced and celebrated, everyone around us improves too. So exactly. that's exactly right. Thank you for sharing that. As I thought about what else we want to talk about in this podcast, because this is a, a really exciting time for me as as the producer of the show, uh and and a vision for where this podcast is going. It's just really exciting. But I realized that I just don't really know a lot about your story, Janice. I've known you for eight years or known of you. My husband grew up with your kids. You've known of my husband for way longer than you've known me. And I just just realized I don't know a lot of your story. So I wanted to kind of spend some time just listening to your stories and your experiences as a Black woman, a Black immigrant woman, in the suburbs of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I love Texas, but we struggle, you know, like everyone with certain things, i.e. accepting people who aren't like us. I will say that kindly. So you've preached at our church and I know, I know what you say. I know you dominate in your career in the oil and gas industry. You inspire me to further my career in education all the time. And so I thought we could just spend some time sharing. Will you tell our listeners a bit about your experience as a Black woman in an interracial marriage moving to the suburbs of Texas?
1: Well, Paul and I met in Alberta, Canada in the late 80s. Paul was working at the University of Alberta, and I was in graduate school at that time. Back then, as an interracial couple in Canada, I can't really recall a time I didn't feel comfortable or accepted. So we got married in 87, and I joined Paul in Houston a couple of months after our actual wedding date. Paul had joined the faculty of the University of Houston the year prior, and when I got here, I worked at the Houston Medical Center. Both of these are fairly diverse environments where we were actually surprisingly to us around several interracial couples. We got occasional curious looks but nothing to make us feel uncomfortable. We moved to the suburbs in 1992 to be closer to my job, which was then at NASA. And what stands out most in my memory was being glared at often. Only when Paul and I were together, when I was by myself or with the kids, we never had that kind of reaction. But when Paul and I were together, people would give what we like to call hard looks. Mm -hmm. One of my most unpleasant memories, and I hadn't really thought about it, was probably somebody rolling down their car window and yelling obscenities at us. Thankfully that only happened once, but it's something that you never forget. I would say that that was probably the most dramatic thing moving to the suburbs.
0: And that happened just randomly,
1: just randomly.
0: And that kind of reminds me of in Friendswood, we had a black lives matter March that I was honored to be a part of. And as we as we as we walked peacefully people rolled down their windows stuck up their middle fingers at us shouted awful things uh we were not bringing the hostility they were and i was there as a voice of someone who as a teacher have witnessed racism firsthand uh regarding my black students And so I was there to support them and I was so excited when I saw them and they saw me because I wanted them to know that I was there as their ally in practical working ways, not hoping ways, like you said. And so I just hate that for you that that happened and that I've seen that now in 2020, I think is when, when we, when we did that. And that was what, in 1992. So just think about how much work there is still to be done.
1: I think people feel emboldened to be ugly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's been, I don't know if, I don't know if that's the legacy of the past few years. Um, but I think people feel emboldened to be ugly. You know, I was at that march as well. And, and for me, I saw that, but I guess that the, the ugliness on the road passing by was overwhelmed by the sheer, support that I felt in that crowd. And that crowd was, I think it was predominantly white crowd. Um, And I felt, I felt supported within this community. And I thought it was very powerful.
0: I, I got emotional because I, I remember what it felt like as a victim of sexual assault to be joined by that many people who weren't victims of sexual assault to say your experience matters. We support you in practical ways. Here is how I'm going to do that. And I, I've, Felt like I was able to do that for my black students and my black friends and say your experience, although they're only, I don't know, like probably 5%. I don't know. Just, we have very few, very, <laughs> very, <laughs> very, very, very small percentage of black people in our community. But those people matter to me. And and to see that many people saying that you matter, your experiences that you've had in this town matter and i'm committed to to changing it for you and that was it was a powerful experience how have you encountered racism and sexism here and in churches and workplaces at executive functions tell me about some of those encounters
1: so i would say racism and sexism in america can be subtle microaggressions or it could be in your face blatant So let me talk a little bit about the microaggressions. And that's a word that really became very, I didn't even know what that was until after George Floyd. Now it's part of our American vernacular, right? Mm -hmm. So if you haven't been the recipient of a microaggression, and I think women of any color experience this, but if you haven't been a recipient, it's sometimes hard to explain what it feels like. In my mind, it's kind of like a bruise that just keeps getting hit repeatedly. That's what it feels like to me. So here are my bruises. The repeated you're so articulate comments are bruises. And why shouldn't I be? I'm very highly educated. So of course I should be articulate, but it's almost like it's not expected. Or your English is so good. Really, I'm from a British colony where we actually learned the Queen's English for years and we do grammar for years. You're not like them, meaning other black people. I get that a lot. I'm never really sure what that means because I'm very much like most of the black people that I know. And it seems odd to generalize a whole race of people to the worst of it. Could you you imagine if I generalize all white people to the worst of white people? But that's something that I get a lot and that gets very old. I've also had the usual experience about being followed by the police, being pulled over for no apparent reason. My sons have experienced this way more than I have. I've had negative experiences in stores where I'm followed. The unspoken message in all of this is you don't really belong here. You couldn't possibly afford to be here or you might steal something. That's never very fun. I've had people be visibly surprised when I show up as Dr. Street and I've watched salespeople engage with Paul, my husband, solely and ignore me when we're making major purchases. I don't know if that's a black thing or a woman thing. Probably a little both. (laughs) Probably. And while all of these are a little bit disturbing, I would say that encountering prejudice of any kind in church settings is even more painful. It goes beyond bruise level to now wounding level in my mind. And I must confess that in my naivety, I never really was prepared for some of those experiences. So in a church we attended in Houston we saw racism in the resistance to hosting an English as a second language class for young Hispanic moms because they and their children were immigrants and there was concern about their kids using our nursery facility and using our kids toys implying that they were unclean least less to say we did it anyway I've been in congregations where women's ideas and voices have been limited to childcare and choir what a waste of talent and energy is what I always think. One of the most ignorant statements I heard years ago from a supposedly Christian coworker was that Black people were the mark of Cain. And this was said with great sweetness and sincerity, oblivious to how wounding those words might be to me. I'm so grateful that I never heard that in any church setting, but confess that it really did wound me deeply. And that was like in the late 90s. I still remember it today. So let's move out of the church into kind of more work settings. I've been in management roles for most of my career, and that has been an interesting experience. It isn't uncommon for me to be the only Black person in a meeting, and I've had many times where people assume that I'm the admin, even though I might be the most senior person in the room. Like many other women, I've had the joy of being mansplained too, putting forward an idea, um, only to have it be more accepted when a man says the very same thing. Before coming to the U.S., I was warned that as a Black person, I would always have to be twice as good as a white person to enjoy the same success. And to be honest, I really hadn't thought about it very much, but when I reflect Every position that I've had as a black person where I succeeded a white person, I have been way more qualified. I wouldn't say way more qualified, but more degreed than the person at every place. And so if the papers are next to each other, yours is stacked against them. Yes. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, that has been something that has been an interesting thing to reflect on. That reminds me
0: of the conversation I had with Cindy Dawson in season in season one where we came back after George Floyd's murder because we recorded it back in January and then coronavirus happened and George Floyd was murdered. And so we wanted to come back and give a caveat to her uh, second episode about trusting yourself while acknowledging your biases, specifically related to when you encounter a Black person. Are you in physical danger? Then call the police. Uh, like, do they have a weapon? Are they harming you? Are they about to harm you because you see a weapon? Or do you just feel a little bit uncomfortable? Don't call the police. And so one of the things we talked about was how our Black friends in the same workplaces have to work twice as hard to prove themselves as equal or as qualified as, or really it's just that I belong here in this job I'm worthy of. And there's some really real consequences that come whenever they step out of that line. Whereas as a white woman and my, my husband as a white man might be more for, forgiven if they step out of line. But uh, there's so much evidence and data that says our black friends and coworkers do not have the same liberties in most workplaces.
1: Yes, even even when even in workplaces where they are trying to be more diverse and inclusive when you look at the facts sometimes that really can be very troubling that we fall short
0: so much because a lot of times again going back to why we're hopefully bringing on my friend i can't say her name yet because it's going to be a surprise and she Mm -hmm. hasn't fully committed yet but we have to have black friends and and marginalized people at the decision making table not just create services that serve them because how why are those coming from white people? <laughs> Shouldn't, I mean, as a woman, I don't want some white man or any man, uh, to tell me how to best reach me. You know, exactly. I want, I want a woman to tell me that, which is why I think I cry every time a woman preaches. Cause it's like, Oh, that's <laughs> what this is supposed to feel like. And I think it's the same thing for, for minorities. So let's go back to the church. Think back to the first time you preached a sermon. How was that experience? Kind of explain to me what insecurities maybe arose for you. And how did you combat that? Did you get any backlash? Tell me a little bit about that experience.
1: So first, let me say that I have zero theological training. Zip, none, nada. And our pastor, David Bridges, invited me to preach as part of his intentional Seeking up having diverse voices when the pulpit. And I'm ever so grateful to him. And I think it's such a powerful message that he's trying to bring to our congregation. So let me answer your question. I do public speaking regularly as part of my job. So being at a podium as a black person in front of a crowd of white people does not make me nervous. It's something I do all the time. That said, I will say that because my very first sermon was about race and our congregation is predominantly white, I was really concerned about people feeling defensive and I didn't want people to be uncomfortable. Although I think you've got to have a little discomfort to learn and grow, but I didn't want people to feel that they were being chastised. Mm-hmm. My intention is always to encourage reflection to make that little bit of discomfort so people can question maybe kind of what some of their, some of the things that they take for granted or some of the things that they may do or think to challenge the way that people think that's always been my intention. So my approach is to always share truth, whether it's my truth, my family's truth, or the experiences of others. Um, And I've been really fortunate. I don't think I've had any backlash or if there has been backlash, I haven't heard it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I've really been blessed that I've always felt affirmed with every time that I've preached, I've only felt affirmation, even though I know that sometimes the content of my, my sermons might challenge people's thinking. And, and I think that's a good thing.
0: I just, again, want to shout out how rare that is. And you know, we just interviewed David for the season or the episode right right before Janice's. And it was so funny because he kept saying, I don't think I can really answer this question because it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's never he's like, I never considered my position to be authoritative or powerful. My parents were equal partners and their parents were. And I come from a long line of Quakers that that are that way. And I just what a gift it is to our community. And to the world, it's, it's just rare. And it has been deeply healing for me because I've seen those same things. What we say in our church can make people uncomfortable because we we have a diverse church in terms of ideology. Absolutely. We have people all over the political spe- spectrum who are outspoken. We have outspoken ac- activists in every political party, not just the two main ones. Um, <laughs> and And I can honestly say that their voices are heard. And and we are able to exist in that tension, not always perfectly, but I know from experience of having a conflict with someone who has a different political opinion than I do, that once we talked about it, we were both willing to forgive. We were both willing to move forward and we both acknowledge our part in the conflict. And that is really beautiful and something I'd never experienced before until coming to our church. And our church isn't perfect by any means, but I am really grateful for the gift that it is to
1: me. To David's credit, I think the leadership sets the tone for it to be a place where we can have different views, and I wouldn't say violently opposing views because Quakers don't do violence, but <laughs> but opposing views and still love passionately each other. opposing, passionately. Views. Yeah, I like that, yeah, yeah.
0: I I just that's so beautiful, and I, I'm just I'm really grateful, and want to explore more of how do we can shape more churches to encourage all kinds of people and all kinds of ideology to coexist? Because isn't that what heaven is?
1: In my house, there are many rooms and nobody says each room has to be painted the same color, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. All right. So Sarah is also here and she's going to chat with us about a recent specific sermon that Janice gave. So I'm going to pass it over to Sarah.
2: I listened to your sermon recently about the power of words. What really jumped out at me is how difficult it can be to use words wisely when you're coming from a place of having experienced marginalization or wounding of any kind. And I just, as I was listening, I admired the wisdom with which you used your words to bring healing and truth and just how you talked about the power of words. Did you decide on that topic to talk about or how was that decided on?
1: Thank you for your kind words, first of all. But I was actually given a choice. We were doing a series on big Bible words, or I could talk about words in generally. And frankly, I was intimidated about the notion of speaking on topics like salvation and sin. Not that I haven't experienced either of those, but a couple of things made the choice to talk about the power of words way more easy. First, knowing how much words have impacted me, both negatively and positively, I could relate to it. And it's always cool when you can relate to what you're talking about on a personal level. And then secondly, you know, we've just come out of and are still in a place where social media and talk radio has been able to incite people, I will say, to bad behavior. Um, We can see the power of words, both written and spoken. And so as I was preparing for the sermon Two authors really influenced kind of my approach to it. First, I'm Eugene Peterson and Dr. Tony Evans. Eugene Peterson has a book called A Book of Poems called Holy Luck, and he advocates about about what I like to call word malpractice. I say that in my sermon, where he describes how words can be used to exploit, to be how words can be misused, how they can be used for manipulation. Tony Evans also has a blog where he describes words as weapons of mass destruction. I just, that was just such an image that I could really relate to. And I I talked about that as well in my sermon, and how words have been used for good and for bad in a national level, local level, and all kinds of levels. And that really kind of influenced how I was able to expand on the power of words.
2: Yeah, for sure. As I was listening, I couldn't help but think about we are living through a very difficult time. There's so much going on. There's so much conflict and divisiveness. And you can just see words being used everywhere in ways that are not helpful in ways that are hurtful i loved that you focused on the positive impact that words can have and i started feeling a little bit convicted because as a very kind of reserved person i struggle to remember to use my words to build people up and to actually proactively reach out and be encouraging to other people during difficult times So I just wanted to ask you about that. What, In your experience in your life, what are some specific ways that you found words to be
1: positively impactful in your life? So I've been blessed by a lot of really deep friendships, friendships dating back to my elementary and high school years in Guyana, and then more recently, close friendships with my Texas girlfriends. So many of these women have encouraged me over the years. In times when I struggled, those have been sources of words of encouragement. But I think the most encouraging words that I've ever received were as a teenager from my dad. For context, my formative years were spent in Guyana, which is a traditional patriarchal culture, and where I was told on multiple occasions that my goal in life was to marry well. That was my goal. My dad always actively rebutted that notion and affirmed two things. His expectations for his three daughters were the same as his expectations for his two sons. And he also affirmed that each of us could be anything we wanted to be. I heard that loud and clear from my dad and I was blessed by that then. And that still is something that I carry with me even today as I approach 60.
0: What? (laughs) Yep. No. (laughs) Yes. can't be you know, Tina just turned 50, I think. Yes. And I was, that one was, that one was weird for me. I was like, wait a minute, you're 30. Wait, no, I'm 30. Age is weird? Um, it is. I'm, I'm like still in college, but I'm not. And I'm, I'm 32 and my husband's <laughs> turning 34. And I'm like, what? I don't understand this world. Well, you look great and you're healthy and you just hiked a you crap go. ton of mountains for a week. So, That's right. you know, you inspire oh, me. Thank you. Damn, I'm jealous. She's <laughs> That will be edited, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll see.
2: In your sermon, you talk about how important it is to walk the talk. Can you explain what that means?
1: For me, it's about how we put our words into action by walking what I like to call the godly talk. If if we as Christians are to, to, as Tony Evans says in one of his podcasts, speak with love and declare truth boldly, it can just be sound bites and niceties. Instead, we have to put our words of love and encouragement into action. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus connects our words to our actions when he talks about each tree being recognized by what it produces. So if we just play lip service with our words and don't reflect the way that Jesus asks us to live in our actions, we have a mismatch between our talk and our walk. Can you talk about um, ways that you've
2: experienced Christian community that did walk
1: the talk versus those that did not? When I think of our earlier years in Friendswood, I get a really good picture of what that walking the godly talk looks like. In the first couple of years after moving to Friendswood from Houston, we drove back and forth about 45 minutes each way to the small church in Houston that had embraced our young family. After over two years of doing this, three times each week, we decided that we needed to find a church closer to home. So Sunday after Sunday, we would drive past Friends with French Church, which is the closest church actually to our house, but we would drive past it to visit neighboring churches in our quest for a new church family. And each week we would get back home feeling hurt by the reactions we received. With very few exceptions, we were met each time with either silence, coldness, or stares. And while they were singing of God's love with their lips, their actions really spoke much louder. They were not welcoming. Our biracial family was definitely not wanted in those in those environments. And after several years of this, we finally decided to pay a visit to Friends with French Church because we were driving past it all the time. We thought, let's just go check it out. And although it was 25 years ago, I still remember that first visit like it was yesterday. We were warmly welcomed. We saw God's love in action. It was reflected in the smiles, in the greetings shared by many folks, and the affirmation and love our family still receives even today. And this is kind of a side. We actually had a scale. We would have a pupil dilation factor when you would walk into churches. And it would go from zero to five. Did they look horrified? That was a five. <laughs> or was it, you know, like nothing at all? But it was unfortunate we had lots of fours and fives.
0: <laughs> what was ours? Like a one?
1: Zero. It was no pupil dilation. People just, you know, I remember it was Kim Page and the curves. They just were so welcoming to us that first
0: time. And I just, again, what David talks about is we have centuries of history behind us of, of this. Yes. John Kerr and Kim Page are two men that you just are are old white guys. <laughs> yes. Yep. <laughs> Who, you know, um, born and raised, I think, in Texas. I mean, they're Texan white guys. And um, I just love that you mentioned that. Yeah. We have it a was, long history
1: of this. Yeah, It was, it was, it, it, we knew we were home, and we stayed.
2: I'm so yeah. glad you found yeah. that. It, it makes me sad, though, to hear about the other experiences, and I, I'm just so sorry that that you experienced that. And in some ways, I, c- I can also relate, and I think this is a topic that, for me, hits home as well, like as a single mom visiting churches. And I think it's it's kind of common for Christians to be seen as – huge hypocrites just for how we, we talk about how much we love people, but, but so many communities don't walk the talk. And to me, it's heartbreaking. And that's something that I think that's why we do this podcast and why we start these conversations is because we have to talk about this. We have to talk about changing the culture within our Christian communities to where we actually put those things into practice, Can you talk about some ways that we can disprove that assumption that Christians are hypocrites in this area, practically speaking?
1: I think the fact is that some Christians do treat today's, what I'll call, air quote, others, whether they're immigrants, people of color, the LGBTQ community, just to name a few, very similar to how I think the Pharisees condemn the prostitute, the taxpayer, and the other others in the Bible. I think it's exactly the same thing. It gets back to the golden rule that we teach our kids. Do unto others as you would like others to do unto you. And I think it all comes down to truly believing and acting out love as being foundational to our faith. If we recall Jesus' words in Matthew, where he talks about what are the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. So I think if we live our lives demonstrating and not just saying we love our neighbors as ourselves, it sounds simple. But I think that's the cue for the church's hypocrisy problem.
2: Okay, so this is another big topic that I think is really important. You also talked about watching yourself talk. Can you tell us what that means?
1: So when I say watching our self-talk, it's a reminder for us to acknowledge and avoid word word malpractice on ourselves. You know, this is that negative self-talk that forms our internal dialogues. And I think we all do this. It's all the negative I am's that vie for our attention. There's that age old question, is your cup half full or half empty? And I've always been much more of a half full kind of person. However, I've had my half empty moments too. So as an example, as a young professional woman, I was one of a few women in our church at the time when my kids were young who worked outside of the home. And so my negative self-talk was that I was a failure as a mom because I chose to work. I didn't have to work, but I chose to work and I loved my job. It was such a blessing to hear the All at Once episode with Laura Porterfield where she really discuss the multiple roles of Christian women, that, you know, as old as I am, that was so affirming for me. And I know that it must have been affirming for lots of other women who made that similar choice. Before I for- formed some of the deep friendships that I have in our church family, I had lots of bouts of loneliness and homesickness, homesickness and I really would want to go back home. And I would tell myself things like, I'm too foreign, too Black, Too different to be deeply loved here. I think when you think about self-talk, an important thing is to remember whether your cup is half full or half empty, it's always refillable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of where we can try to make a change in how we do that negative self-talk.
2: That reminds me of a a book that I have for my kids. Um, I think it's called How Full Is Your Bucket? Mm. And it really kind of illustrates for kids how the the concept of of your bucket being full or empty and the kinds of things that that pour water out of your bucket and the kinds of things that put water back into your bucket and then the ability to recognize the buckets of the people around you and to be able to make a difference in their lives as well and it's just i mean even as a parent reading this book to my children i'm like i i need this reminder we need to read this book regularly because <laughs> because it It's a lesson for people of all ages. It's just explained on a kid level. It just made me think of that. Janice,
0: as you were saying, I'm I'm too much of this or that statements. It brought tears to my eyes because I just want to take a moment and pause there for a second. As you were talking, I want our listeners to think. You know what are what are your I'm too statements? I will share mine. I'm too difficult. I'm too intense. I'm too excited. (laughs) I'm too passionate. I'm too busy. I'm too involved. I have too much fun. I'm not a good wife. Because of those things, I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good mother because I choose to work too. And I think we all have these lies that we cause a shame spiral as we go through a hardship or, or just see someone who reminds us of what we aren't. It's really easy to get in your head and, and repeat your, your, I am two statements. But what came to my mind is how God says I am. And I just imagined God taking all of our I'm two statements and he has those on himself as he dies on the cross. So Jesus is, I am. Mm-hmm. And so we can give all of our, I am two statements up to Jesus because Jesus was intense Jesus worked. Jesus was passionate. Jesus was excited. All of these things that we've been trained by our culture and patriarchy to believe our faults are actually how God made us to be exactly how we were supposed to be. And that's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful reminder.
1: Nicely said. I love that.
2: Mm -hmm. So kind of continuing with that thought, what what is that negative self-talk over time, just continuously? What does that do to a person?
1: It's so destructive. It it really makes us feel less than. It makes us feel inferior. It makes us feel labeled and self-defeated. and And consistent negative self-talk and pessimism can even impact your health. There's some really good research coming out that talks about it, you know, impacting your level of stress, you know, impacting your psychological and physical well-being, as well as your coping skills. So it's really something that physically and emotionally can be detrimental. I like to say negative self-talk is like a parasite because sometimes you don't even realize that you're doing it, especially when you do it often. It can steal your energy, it can steal your joy, um, and it's really something that you need to recognize because I think it's a critical step in caring for ourselves to recognize when we do have those negative dialogues with ourselves.
0: And Sarah and I got to interview Soraya Shamali a few episodes back, and she has a great book called Rage Becomes Her that I already told you all to go by. So just a reminder to go by that because it talks about how negative self-talk really influences our physical health and heart disease and specifically related to women. And so I just encourage you to go read that book again. For sure.
2: So then what's the antidote to the negative self-talk? Is it positive self-talk?
1: Yes. I Yeah. I mean, I think it, it is basically that. And I was, I was thinking about that. Lauren Daigle has that song, You Say. It's like my all-time favorite song. I listen to it when I'm walking to dogs. I think the people in my neighborhood probably are tired of hearing me singing along with, my, with my, my headset. And she sings, You Say I Am Loved When I Can't Feel a Thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I am falling short. When I don't belong, you say I am yours. I just love those words. And I think it's really how she counterbalances the negative idea with positive self-talk. She sings in that song that in Christ we find our worth and our identity. And I think her words can really remind us that what I am, what we are, that each of us is made in God's image, not what any label describes us as. And that it's so whether those are labels that we give ourselves, because we do that, or whether they're labels others assign to us. So if we understand all that, I think then we can say with confidence that I am what God says I am. As I was listening,
2: I think in your sermon, you said that just for practical mental health purposes, that you start each day Asking yourself, who does God say I am? What, kind of, what does that do for you right at the beginning of your day?
1: I think it just reminds me that I am blessed, right? That I am loved. I am passionate. I am courageous and that I'm strong. And most of all, it reminds me that I am His, And that really, I'm not saying that during the day that I can hold my full bucket all day and carry me through the day, but it really does help to set you up to remember that most of all, we are His.
2: So now relating all of that back to the big picture message that we've been talking about, what does it mean for us to be truly understanding that each and every person is created in the image of God?
1: I think it gets to the reality of how unchristian racism, sexism, and other forms of prejudice are and calls us to use our words and actions to speak out against racism, sexism in our homes, in our churches, and in our communities. Because if we understand that everyone is created in the image of God, it means that at an individual level, we understand the inherent worth of our fellow image bearers, right? And that what gives us worth doesn't depend on things like our status or gender or race, whether you're native born or immigrant, whether you're rich, poor, educated or uneducated. I think that's a really good reminder for us. And then at a societal level, I think it really does mean that we take action when policies, laws, and systems discriminate against others based on some of those same factors,
2: I'm so glad that our listeners are able to hear your words. Janice, what would
0: you like to leave listeners with as we prepare for our next season to learn more about the experiences of people of color and with their encounters with abusive power within the church and as a whole?
1: I'd like to kind of focus on Micah 6.8. It's one of my favorite verses. It sits in my kitchen window and it states, what does the Lord require of you? but to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I think this verse is a rallying cry for Christian self-examination about how we treat others who are different from us. Are we seeking justice? Because God calls us to justice. Our faith demands that we examine our biases and whether we treat others as fairly as possible. Are we silent when we see injustice? Or are we a voice for the oppressed and marginalized? Do we love mercy? The Hebrew word translated as mercy describes God's active love. And are we actively seeking relationship with those who don't look like us or think like us? Are we walking the godly talk? And then are we walking humbly with God? I think for some, this is the hardest one. This is the one that's the biggest challenge because are we really trying to learn with a servant heart? Are we sitting self righteously in our little suburban bubbles rather than judging? Are we getting curious about the experiences of others, recognizing as Quakers believe that there is that of God in everyone? I think as you go into, as we go into the next season, one of the things I really wanted to bring home is that looking at people of color as a monolithic group of people is a mistake because even within the black community, we come with different levels of privilege from zero to some. I'll give myself as an example. I grew up in a country where my father was a very important person. I'm educated. My whole family's educated. So I bring a degree of of, of privilege to my experiences So when somebody says something ugly to me, even though I might be hurt, it doesn't define who I am. Mm -hmm. But when you think of people who are, from the time that they are young, they've grown up in circumstances where this negativity is there always, that's a whole different experience, I think. At the end of the day, though, when I'm driving, when I'm in a store, I'm just another Black person. So my reaction to the microaggressions might be different because I come with my bit of privilege, that I don't believe those things. Mm-hmm. Think of how challenging that is for someone who has a different level or no privilege. And I think that's so important to recognize that the range of experiences that Black people come with. So I think I would pray that we're all going to be responsive to God's call to stand alongside the marginalized and oppressed as we seek justice, love, mercy and walk humbly with him. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been so much fun.
0: I'm so grateful for you, Janice. And in more than one way, just on a friendship level and as a role model really for so many young women and men to look up to as someone who seeks justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with the Lord as you do hard things. And uh, you inspire me, you inspire my husband. You make our lives better, and I'm grateful for you. I'm going to add some homework for our listeners. As you begin to prepare yourself for season three, go buy Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here. It's a hard one. I've confronted my own white fragility within it. I. It has been. It doesn't shy away from the hard things, and it doesn't center or tone down the experiences of a Black female for my own comfort intentionally. And she talks about that. And so for homework, I want you to listen to that. I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown. You can listen to it or read it. I'm listening to the Audible book that's read by her and it's phenomenal. And I think it'll help set us up well if you want to do a little bit of homework until we launch season three. So Janice, thank you again for being here and it's been a privilege.
2: Yes, thank you. Well, before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and
0: I also want to recognize the All At Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director. Molly Bays is our social media manager, Taylor Diggs, our intern, and Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs and Friendswood. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening. While the world keeps on